excuse me. <clears throat> I may cough from time to time. You must forgive me. It's wonderful to be back here at Ebenezer. I have preached here on one occasion and spoken for the Bible League on another occasion, but it's a joy to be back and a privilege to be among you, dear friends, and to know that we are like-minded in our love for the Word of God and its proclamation. Joy also to spend time with Mr. and Mrs. Butler. Thank them for the kind hospitality that they've given to my wife and I. And it's a joy to see Mr. and Mrs. Burroughs once again. <clears throat> well, Mr. Butler has already given a brief summary of the reasons that lay behind the formation of the Bible League or the Bible Defense League as it was called for a short while before it was changed to the Bible League. 1859 is a year that is significant to many people who know anything about church history. It was a year of great revival in various parts of Europe, in the United States. It was a year of mighty blessing in this land too. And you may remember a book that was published by the Manor of Truth in its early years, Revival Year Sermons, sermons preached by Charles Spurgeon in 1859. So that year witnessed a remarkable spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as one would expect, Satan was not idle. You will know that that year saw the publication of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species. And in the following year, a book was published which perhaps did more damage in the church than Darwin's work. It was published by a number of Anglican ministers. It was called Essays and Reviews. And its purpose was clearly to oppose many fundamental biblical doctrines. The inspiration of scripture, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the miracles of the Bible, the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. It was the beginning of unbridled modernism, liberalism, distrust in the word of God, a refusal to believe that the God of heaven could work in a supernatural manner. So there was this double attack. There was the blessing, the blessing of revival in many places. Then there was the scientific attack, so-called, not true science, but the beginning of the spread of the unproved and unprovable theory of evolution. And then there was the, the theological attack with these Anglican clergymen, and of course in every denomination that was also evident, as we've been reminded of by Mr. Butler, of the terrible downgrade in the Baptist Union. <clears throat> it's interesting that the <clears throat> church while I was the pastor in London for 25 years, Archbishop Road Tabernacle, the first minister was a man called Francis Monty, 
And he was one of the 30 ministers who signed what has sometimes been called Spurgeon's Manifesto. And his daughter, whom I knew quite well for a few years, she was very aged, of course, when I became the minister of Archbishop Road Tabernacle, but she knew Mr. Spurgeon. It was remarkable to talk with somebody who had known Mr. Spurgeon. And I said to her, what sort of a man was he? Well, she said, I was only a, I was only a little girl. But my father used to visit Mr. Spurgeon and would take my sister and I with him. And I remember that Mr. Spurgeon was a very kind man. So that was nice to hear from this dear lady who had known Mr. Spurgeon. <clears throat> While Spurgeon wrote when he was involved in the downgrave, he withdrew from the Baptist Union, and he said, the fight is killing me. And indeed, it did shortly afterwards when he died in early in 1892. Well, dear friends, here we are tonight with our authorized versions in our hands. I hope that's true of everybody here. <clears throat> but I say to you, first of all, to you younger people, what would you say if some of your friends or I don't know, people at college or at work. What to say to you, well, you say you believe the Bible. Where did the Bible come from? Where did the Bible come from? You say it's the word of God, but how was it formed? How is it that we have a Bible? Well, I wonder how you would answer them. What I want to do tonight is to speak particularly about the Old Testament scriptures. <clears throat> that wonderful verse that Paul wrote to Timothy in the second epistle, chapter 3 and verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And he was talking about the Old Testament scriptures, of course. Most of the New Testament, well, hardly any of the New Testament had yet been written. But he was speaking of the Old Testament when he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. <clears throat> and when our Lord Jesus Christ said, Thy word is truth. He was speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. When he said the scripture cannot be broken, he was speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. When he refuted his critics and his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees and others, and he would often say, have you not read? Do you not know this scripture? It was always the Old Testament, wasn't it? Let's remember that the Old Testament was our Lord's Bible. The Old Testament was the Apostles' Bible. It was Matthew's Bible and Luke and Paul and the Apostles. That was the Bible, the Bible they had. But how did it come into being? Well, I do have a text, although I don't really want to expound the Scriptures tonight. I just want to concentrate on, on how we come to have our Old Testament. We are more familiar with the, the New Testament, the, the writings of the, of the four evangelists and our Lord saying to them that when the Holy Spirit has come, he will bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. And when people say, well, how did they remember everything? Well, it wasn't because they had good memories. It was because the Holy Spirit brought to their remembrance all things that the Lord had said and done. 
And then, of course, we have the, the epistles of Paul and Peter and James and John and, and Jude. And we understand more easily how the New Testament came into being. <clears throat> but in the epistle to the Hebrews, <clears throat> chapter 1, indeed the very first verse of the epistle to the Hebrews, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, that's the Old Testament, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. And now we come to the New Testament. Hath in these last days, last days of course being the, the gospel age from the first to the second coming of our Lord, the last days. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So we have God who in times past spake in diverse manners, in different ways, unto the fathers by the prophets. So that is really our theme tonight, how God, in diverse manners, and at sundry times, various times, spoke in time past unto the fathers. Generation of the Old Testament, from creation onwards, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So, how is it that we have a Bible? How is it that we have an Old Testament? Well, what I want to do tonight is to look with you at some of the Old Testament scriptures and note the various ways in which God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. To see how that the words he spoke to them and through them came to be written down, copied when needed, preserved, proclaimed publicly, quoted, former prophets quoted by later prophets, and of course wonderfully endorsed by our Lord and by his apostles in the verses which I've already quoted. <clears throat> well, I want to quote a number of verses tonight, which is surely appropriate in a meeting on behalf of the Bible League. And which reminds me that there is a, a small book table here, one or two books and one or two booklets and free copies of the Bible League Quarterly magazine, which I encourage you to look at at the close of the meeting. <clears throat> So I have seven headings, seven different aspects of this same subject, how we have our Old Testament scriptures. First of all, we should consider the fact of divine revelation, the fact that God spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. And then we shall have the obedient writing of that revelation which God 
first spoke, how it came to be written, and why it came to be written. Then we should think about the, the wonderful providential preservation of the documents so written. Then we should consider the accurate copying of the scriptures, which of course was a very slow process and very few Old Testament believers would have had a copy of the scriptures. The Levites had some, the king had one, others had some, but they were accurately risen. That which God spake and that which was written, that which was wonderfully preserved, was also accurately copied, and a word about that in a moment. And then we have on numerous occasions the public reading of the scriptures. On numerous occasions we read of the opening of the book of the law of the Lord, and the people being taught out of it, and often standing for hours with their children to hear the reading, the public reading of the word of God. <clears throat> then we shall note how later prophets quoted earlier prophets, which is an interesting aspect of biblical truth, which is not always noted. <clears throat> and then, of course, we shall just briefly remember the endorsement of the Old Testament scriptures by our Lord. The scripture cannot be broken. And his apostles, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. <clears throat> now if you want seven headings, seven words, revelation, transcription, writing, preservation, Reproduction, copying, proclamation, reading, confirmation, prophets quoting earlier prophets, and authorization by our Lord and his apostles. <clears throat> well, first of all then, revelation. Revelation. In the book of Job, Zophar, rightly asks the question, canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? And the answer clearly implied is no, we cannot. It is an impossibility for man by searching to find out God, to comprehend God. If God is to be known by man, it is necessary for God to reveal himself to man, to speak to man, to perform mighty acts for man. Well, how did he reveal himself? If God must reveal himself in order for man to know something of him, how did God reveal himself? Well, he revealed his existence and some of his attributes, his wisdom, his power, his glory, 
in the creation and in the natural world. You know, the first verse of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And in the way that he dealt with his creatures before and following the fall, he further reveals something of his love, his justice, his grace, his wrath, his righteousness. But those acts of God require explanation. Otherwise, mankind would just have to try and work out what they all meant. And this necessary explanation of his works and words God has given as he has spoken audibly to different men and women at different times. We cannot fail to note this because over 3,800 times in the Old Testament we read, the Lord said. The word of the Lord came, thus saith the Lord. The mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And other similar expressions. But then we would ask, how did God speak? How did he reveal himself? Well, before the time of the patriarchs, say from Abraham onwards, before that time, up to and including the time of the flood, God spoke directly. God spoke to Adam. God spoke to Eve. God spoke to the serpent. It's incredible, isn't it? The first gospel promise was given to the serpent. The seed of the woman shall bruise thy head. God spoke to Noah. God spoke to Cain. God spoke directly to these men and women and to Satan in the form of that serpent. And in the times of the patriarchs from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, through to the end of Genesis, God spoke and revealed his word sometimes through what we call theophanies, or more accurately Christophanies, appearances of the deity in human form. We normally see this in the description, the angel of the Lord. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, before his incarnation, appearing in something of his glory, though in human form, to reveal the will and word of God. And you will find, as you read of the various visits of the angel of the Lord to Abraham and to others in the patriarchal times, that they were aware that God was speaking to them. And they would frustrate themselves. And Samson's parents, for instance, said, we shall die for we have seen God. 
Samson's mother, in a very practical way, said if God were going to kill us, he would not have accepted a sacrifice from us. And during the period of Moses, going on into the book of Exodus, God continued to reveal himself through signs and wonders, the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of the manna, the pillar of cloud and fire. In all these things, God was revealing himself. But the chief instrument through whom God revealed himself was Moses, to whom the Lord spake face to face. God commissioned him at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, commissioned him to be his authorized spokesman and a unique prophet in Israel's history. So we read in the book of Deuteronomy, and he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth. God spoke directly to Moses in a way that he did not speak to any other. And when Moses died, this was the testimony that was given about him. There arose not a prophet in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. During the age of conquest, book of Joshua and the book of Judges, the law of Moses continued to be the law that was given to Moses, of course, by God, continued to be Israel's authoritative code. The Lord spoke to Joshua, Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right or to the left. And God spoke on other occasions to Joshua, giving instructions about how they were to march around Jericho. And the walls would fall. God also spoke to Gideon. He spoke, to, as I've already mentioned, to Samson's parents. In the age of the prophets, God spoke to Samuel as a child. God came to Samuel, you remember. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel did not know the Lord. He did not realize who was calling him. And he ran to Eli two or three times. Then Eli discerned that it was the Lord. And he said, when he speaks again, you will say, speak, Lord. Thy servant heareth. And subsequently, God spoke to Samuel concerning King Saul and concerning the choice of David to be Saul's successor. And in the days before the kingdom was divided, God spoke directly to David and to Solomon. And also through prophets like Gad and Nathan, 
He also spoke through David and Solomon in the Psalms, in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. David was conscious of this. He wrote, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. You see, this is the way in which God was speaking at sundry times and in diverse manners unto the fathers. And the New Testament writers confirm this. Concerning the appointment of a successor to Judas, Peter said this, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost spoke by the mouth of David. The Holy Ghost spoke by the mouth of David. Concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. And then when the church was in danger of destruction by the opposition, they met together for prayer and they said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. By the mouth of David, they said. In the days of the divided kingdom, remember, the rebellion because of Rehoboam, Solomon's son's foolishness, the northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribe of Judah. God spoke through Ahijah to Jeroboam. Through Shemaiah to Rehoboam. Through Micaiah to Ahab. And then later on, in the Old Testament from the 9th to the 5th century before Christ, God spoke to those who were called the writing prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the 12 so-called minor prophets. So throughout the Old Testament, we can see that God was revealing his words in different ways, Appearances of the angel of the Lord, our blessed Saviour, the second person of the Holy Trinity, in human form, through dreams, and visions, and direct communication, and sundry manners, and to various men, God was revealing his word. So, revelation. God must reveal himself to man, and God did reveal himself to man, different men in different periods, in different ways. But this revelation was coming continually. Well, that is the longest section of my address. Um, we come now to transcription or, or copying. Following the divine revelation which God gave in those various ways to various people at different times, God gave instructions regarding the recording of that revelation which he gave. He not only spoke to and through these men, 
but instructed them to write. So it was that Moses recorded the things which God revealed to him. In Exodus 24 and verse 24, sorry, Exodus 24 and verse 4, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. God had spoken to him, remember, on the, on the mount, on Mount Sinai, he had given the Ten Commandments and other laws. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. All the words of the Lord, Moses wrote. And the Lord said unto Moses, later on in the book of Exodus, in chapter 34 and verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words. For after the tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And you remember in that chapter in, in the book of Numbers, Numbers 33, where all the various travelings of the children of Israel through the wilderness are recorded. They went for so-and-so, from so-and-so, to so-and-so, all the different stops that they made. And we read, Moses wrote their goings out according to their journeys by the commandment of the Lord. And these are their journeys. That's the opening verse of Numbers chapter 33. These are the journeys of the children of Israel. Moses wrote them according by the commandment of the Lord. And Moses wrote all the law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levite, the ones who bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto, unto all the elders of Israel. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites saying, take this book of the law, this book which he had written, which God had revealed, put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. And of course, on the one occasion our Lord said to the scribes and Pharisees, who were making a great deal of Moses, he said, had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. He wrote of me. But not only Moses, Joshua. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Samuel also wrote what God revealed to him. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom. Saul's, when Saul was appointed. And wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the Lord said unto me, take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel saying, write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. We have the book, 
We call it Jeremiah. But Jeremiah wrote all the words that the Lord communicated to him and through him in a book. And in that mysterious vision of the temple at the end of the prophecy of Ezekiel, God said to Ezekiel, show them the form of the house and the fashion thereof and all the laws thereof and write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them and have a cup. The Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon tables, tablets. And a modern theologian has rightly said, the fact that it is recorded that God instructed some of the prophets to write justifies the conclusion that he did so with all those whom we call the writing prophets the major prophets and the so-called minor prophets. So we see in all these periods, the time of Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, and all the prophets, not only the word of God being revealed, but being inscripturated, written. And each book so written became a part of recognized Scripture. So revelation, transcription. God revealing, causing the revelation to be written. Then we have the very important truth of preservation. Preservation. We have clear biblical, biblical evidence that these sacred writings were carefully preserved. Moses commanded the Levites, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom, wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And you remember in the days of Josiah, that wonderful young reforming king, Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And in the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded to Israel. You see, these were wonderfully and amazingly preserved. So we may say that God having revealed himself progressively at sundry times and in diverse manners Ensure that each revelation was written down and that each copy was carefully preserved, giving special instructions for their careful preservation. Let me come to our fourth point, reproduction or copying. It was necessary 
from time to time for copies to be made of these sacred writings. The first time that a copy of scripture was ever made was by God himself when he wrote again the Ten Commandments after Moses had broken those first two tablets upon which the commandments were written when he saw the idolatry of the golden calf. And we read, God wrote on the tables according to the first writing, the Ten Commandments. That is the principle of the copying of scriptures according to the first writing. God reproduced those words. And that was the principle for all subsequent copying of the scriptures that they were to be exactly reproduced. And that rule continued to operate. Do you remember that occasion? Jeremiah was shut up in the prison and his words were taken and read before the ungodly king Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim took hold of this, this scroll and he slashed it with a penknife and he threw it in the fire. God gave to Jeremiah very precise instructions. Take thee again another roll and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. <clears throat> Copies were also made when the kings of Israel were anointed. A copy of the law was to be given to every king of Israel. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book. And when young Joash, whose life had been wonderfully preserved from Athaliah, that murderous woman, when he was crowned, then they brought out the king's son, his seven-year-old boy, put, him upon the, put upon him the crown, gave him the testimony. Testimony is used frequently in the Old Testament to indicate the written law of God. So they gave to this new young king a copy of the law of God. And the priests, of course, and the Levites, who at various times were sent out to teach the people the law of God, they would have had copies of parts of the scriptures, particularly, of course, the, the Mosaic laws. And we read of one specific instance in the reign of the godly king Jehoshaphat. He sent the Levites out on a teaching ministry throughout the kingdom. And we read this in 2 Chronicles 17. And they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them and went about throughout all the cities and taught the people. And people sometimes say, oh yes, but copies, you can make mistakes with copies. The copies of the Old Testament scriptures, this work was undertaken by 
a particular group of Jewish scribes called the Masoretes. That's why the Old Testament text is referred to as the Masoretic text. These men had a profound reverence for the words of God. And when they were copying, they used to add the number of words in every line and put in the margin 5, 10, 15, so that none could be added or subtracted deliberately or inadvertently. And their work was always carefully checked by others. And if one error was found on one section of the scroll, the whole had to be rewritten. So there was this, this scrupulous, infallible copying of the scriptures. Well, many critics have said, yes, yes, that's all very well. But over thousands of years, of course, the text was bound to have been corrupted. When the Dead Sea Scrolls, you may have heard of that, you young people, discovered in Israel between 1947 and 1956, they contained parts of over 20 Old Testament books. Many of the scrolls dated back to Old Testament books. And it was found that they confirmed the copies which the Jewish scribes had made hundreds of years before. So we have revelation, we have transcription, writing, we have preservation, we have copying. This is how we, this is how we have our Old Testament, because God revealed it. God caused it to be written down, and God preserved those writings. And those writings were, in this wonderfully accurate way, copied by these Masoretic scribes. And there's just three other points that I want to make. And that is proclamation. Because people didn't have a Bible, as we have so many, only a few privileged people some priests, scribes, the king, a few privileged people had the copies of the scriptures. Therefore, it was necessary for the scriptures to be publicly read in order that the people may become familiar with. Imagine if the only scripture you ever heard was that which was read in a service. Well, normally we have perhaps two comparatively short readings. If you wanted to know what the Bible said, you would want all the Bible to be read, wouldn't you? You would want somebody to stand and read to you, or sit and read to you, the book of Genesis, and the book of Leviticus, and the book of Numbers, Jeremiah's prophecy, and Isaiah's prophecy. We want to hear that. And it would be important for us to, to hear it. How else would we know what the Word of God said? So the public reading of scripture on various occasions was in order that God's words might be kept before the people as his perpetual revelation to them. And we have instances of this in the scriptures. In the time of Moses, he took the book of the covenant 
and read in the audience of the people and they said all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. Sadly they weren't as good as their word but they had it read to them. Joshua built an altar unto the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal and he read all the words of the law, the blessings and cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded which Joshua read not before all the congregation of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. Josiah. The king went up into the house of the Lord and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. In the days after the exile when the Jews returned to Jerusalem and the temple was rebuilt and the walls of Jerusalem of course. Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation both of men and women and he read therein from the morning until midday. You might think that's probably about three hours. Hearing the word of God read. Before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. So it was revealed, it was written, it was preserved, it was copied, and it was publicly proclaimed, read. And just another interesting fact is that it is evident that the later prophets were familiar with the writings of their earlier colleagues and always regarded them as wholly authoritative. So we find the prophet Joel quoting Obadiah. Obadiah only has one chapter, but the prophet Joel quoted from Obadiah's short writings. We have Amos quoting Joel. And in Jeremiah's day, some of the elders of the land defended Jeremiah when he spoke about Jerusalem being ploughed as a field and his opponents took hold of him. And those who were supporting him said, but, but Micah said this. Micah said this. Let me just read to you what Micah did say. Micah chapter 3 and verse 12. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be ploughed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. And the people defended him and they said, Why are you so angry with Jeremiah? Micah has already said this. And did the godly king in Micah's day take any action? No. He took note of those words. When Daniel was in Babylon, towards the end of that 70 years of captivity, Daniel was familiar with the writings of Jeremiah. And we read in Daniel 9 verse 2, 
Daniel in Babylon understood from the writings of Jeremiah that the captivity was drawing to a close. I, Daniel, understood the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. You see, these later prophets like Daniel, he was familiar with the prophecy of Jeremiah. And he knew that he'd been in Babylon nearly 70 years. And so he set himself to pray because he knew that this is what God had said. And Zechariah, last but one book of the Old Testament, he wrote, Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord, which he hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets. You see, all these things testify so clearly, don't they, to the, to the authority, the preservation of these scriptures which were read and quoted, preserved in that wonderful way which God first gave and caused to be written down and accurately copied and distributed and proclaimed. And lastly, it is these writings from Genesis to Malachi in their entirety, not one part is missing. All these writings, all scripture, to which our Lord and his apostles constantly referred when our Lord was tempted, those three temptations of Satan, he said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, thou shalt worship the Lord and him only shalt thou serve quoting three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Our Lord refuted his critics. By the scriptures he settled every question. Jesus saith unto them, Did you not read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvellous in our eyes. On another occasion Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Over 20 times in the Gospels, our Lord speaks of scripture or scriptures. Three times he speaks of the law and the prophets. Once of the Psalms, the law and the prophets. In the Acts and the Epistles, these holy writings are 28 times referred to as scripture and scriptures, the holy scriptures, the law and the prophets, the oracles of God. And they are so frequently quoted by the apostles to confirm their doctrines and enforce their arguments. How many times do you read in Paul's epistle, what saith the scripture? What saith the scripture? When Peter, on the day of Pentecost, and the people were, the, um, those upon whom the Spirit had come were speaking in tongues, and the critics said, these men are drunk. What did Peter say? 
These men are not drunk, I should suppose, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so on, and he quotes that prophecy about the pouring out of the Spirit of God. So this is how we have our Old Testament. God spoke unto the fathers in various times, in different ways, in different ways, to different men, spake directly, in visions, dreams, appearances, theophanies. Caused these things to be written down, commanded that they should be written, one that they preserved them. Saw that they were accurately copied. Were publicly read so that people might know what the Lord had said. Quoted by other scriptures and endorsed by the Lord and his apostles. I would like to spend another hour telling you of all the wonderful prophecies in the Old Testament concerning our Lord Jesus. All the wonderful pictures, the types. You remember our Lord himself said, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And there are so many more prophecies and types and promises. You remember on the road to Emmaus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And when he subsequently appeared to the eleven, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. I don't know whether it's accurate to say this, but there is probably as much of Christ in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. Look for him. Whenever you read the Old Testament, look for the Savior. Look for him in prophet, priest, and king. Look to him in incidents and types. The manna from heaven, I am the bread of heaven, he says. The smitten rock, he was smitten. And so on. So we may have unfaltering confidence in the Old Testament scriptures. From their account of creation, right through to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One biblical, scholar, one biblical scholar said this, God who gave the scriptures, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, has exercised remarkable care over his word, has preserved it in all ages in a state of purity, and has enabled it to accomplish the purpose for which he gave it. Here is the foundation, dear friends, on which our faith and our experience and all our hope depend. Standing firm on what one British Prime Minister once called the impregnable rock of Holy Scripture, we have absolute certainty concerning what we believe, how we are to conduct ourselves as we walk in this wicked world along the narrow way, and what our God has prepared for them that love him. It's all here in this wonderful, wonderful word of the Lord. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's in this word of the Lord, which liveth 
and endureth forever. Amen. Now the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen.